0: Greetings and welcome to episode 18 of Beyond Hua Xia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about education and its role in the Chinese civil service examination system, the earliest certified examination system anywhere in the world. For those of you who detest taking SATs, GREs, MATs, LSATs, whatever, this is the originary moment um, in which standardized tests were first created. Alright, it happened in China. Now, let's begin with the purpose of education. Why do you educate people? Okay. Well, you're supposed to bring about, as we know, transformation of some sort. You're supposed to transform people into morally superior exemplars of virtuous behavior and conduct. You bring the world into order. By first ordering yourself into a superior, morally superior human being. Okay? It was deeply humanistic. Okay? The purpose is to bring order to the world by managing it properly. How do you manage it properly? Well, you serve the government, which heaven has decreed as its legitimate representative on earth. The job of the government is to serve as an earthly extension of heaven and its natural pr- principles, to bring order and balance to the world on earth. Thus, if the world is in disorder, it is because the government and its officials have failed to bring order in line with heavenly principles. How do we know what these heavenly principles are? Well, you got to read the classics, because that's where everything worth knowing was preserved, the Confucian classics. Now, after you've read the Confucian classics... The ultimate goal of education is to serve the government and thus order the world in accordance with heavenly principles. This is the grand theory, okay? Education is not for its own sake. It is for the improvement of the world and the betterment of people's lives. Now, what kind of a world is this? This is the world of Mencius. It is not the world of Xunzi or Zhuangzi. All right? It is not the world where all men are believed to be evil. And have to be coercively transformed. All right, it is not the world of Zhuangzi in which everything's relative, and we can know nothing for certain. No, 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 no. This is the world of Mencius, a benevolent moral universe that needs only self-conscious, hard-working, superhuman sages to realize our good, ingrained potential and bring it out to the surface. Okay. Those who move up in life are assumed, as all the sure philosophers said. They are assumed to deserve it by virtue of their successful education. Okay? They have accumulated and rectified and amassed enough virtue to the point where the world has decided to reward them. And if you've not been rewarded by high position and wealth in this life, then you didn't uh, uh, you know, transform yourself into a morally superior man through education. Okay. This assumption ignores, of course, the resources that were necessary for the access to education, and thus, in this theory, the opportunity to accumulate and perfect your virtue. The duh. So it's obviously education in this sense is a tool of a self serving ideology of the wealthy elites. Because education is not free. You need money to get a tutor, to go to school, you need money to travel to find these tutors, and take the exams, and serve the government. And only the wealthy people can afford that. Okay? Regardless, education plays a central role in the identity of any elite throughout East Asian history. Okay? And the perception of these people among the non-elites, among the poorer classes. Okay? And its importance is difficult to overstate. The idea was that the world is divided between two types of people, rulers and ruled. And the rulers were supposed to be made up of rational gentlemen, the junzi, who care about the world at large and try to see and manage the big picture. Everyone else is interested in self-serving profit and petty schemes. They don't know right from wrong. They're irrational. They may be inherently good, but they need the superior rational gentleman to bring that goodness out. The common people are wasteful, immoral, litigious, ignorant, and they practice heterodox customs and rituals because they don't know any better. And we have failed to transform them. The gentleman, the refined, transformed gentleman, brings out the goodness into them, turns them to moral orthodoxy, and he was supposed to blame himself if the people did not do good things. An 18th century famous Chinese official says, quote, only by educating the people on a routine basis can we officials avoid having to subject them to criminal punishments when they err. Is this not why we are called the fathers and mothers of the people? All right, that's how it was regarded. We are in the position of the father and mother, and we have to guide the ignorant children of our realm to do good things. Okay? Okay. So this is largely a Mencian world, a world defined by Mencius. Yes, there's a little bit of students in here. There's still this idea that education is something that people resist, right? Transformation is not easy, and it can be a painful process that takes years and years and years of work and study and memorization and all this sort of stuff. But ultimately, this is a a world in which you are being trained to bring out the inherent goodness that is already there, in which lack of education tends to obscure and turn us all towards doing evil things. All right, so what was, what were the sort of paths that could put someone on the trail of getting an education? Let's begin in the late imperial era, the last thousand years of Chinese history or so, okay, maybe a thousand AD or so, the Song Dynasty. Until 1905, when finally the civil service examination system is abolished. There were two possible paths for boys who had an access to education. Okay? And when I say boys that had access to education, it means you're not living in poverty and having to go out in the field all the time. Your parents are already comfortable enough where, just like, you know, they've managed to bind your, your sister's feet and take her out of the workforce, uh, they are also able to take you out of the workforce. And send you to study all the time. It's an economically unproductive activity, at least for the first 25-30 years of your life. Alright, so they're comfortable enough to be able to invest in you in in that way. You don't have to work, you can grow your fingernails long, because you don't engage in manual labor. Okay, and you also have no bad family backgrounds. There's no merchants in your family. Alright, there's no prostitutes, there's no actors. There's no criminals for three generations. All these sort of, you know, debased statuses can't be in your family either. Okay? Now, if you've gotten past that, then for the fortunate of these boys who succeed as much as they can possibly succeed, what you have to look forward to is a continual upward trajectory toward government service that is based on success in the civil service examination system which will be routinized and systematized during the Song. Right, the examination system will be created during the Tang Dynasty in the 700s, but it's not going to be in a form that we really recognize. It'll be systematized systematized, and standardized during the Song Dynasty, about 1000 to 1250 AD or so. Okay. Now, if you manage to go upwards through the civil service examination system, It will be capped off by the glory of imperial appointment in the bureaucracy. You'll have an official state salary, and you'll have the ability to harness a million other forms of unofficial income through your exalted and influential status and position. Let's compare annual wages, shall we? An agricultural laborer, a peasant who works in the fields, might make five to seven tails of silver. Tails, not like a dog's tail. Uh, We spell it T-A-E-L. A tail of silver, maybe five to seven tails per year for a peasant. A modest landlord who doesn't have to work, but has a few properties that he rents out and is doing, you know, quite comfortable, will make about 130 tails a year. A county magistrate, all right, this is the lowest level of the imperial bureaucracy. If you've passed the civil service examination system and your educational career has been a success, this is probably your first job you will make 30,000 tails a year. If you're the governor of a province, you will make 180,000 tails a year. Doing pretty well, aren't you? A lot better than the five to seven tails per year you're making as a peasant in the fields. All right, now that 30,000 tails for the county magistrate and 180,000 tails for the governor, that's slightly misleading because they have an enormous number of expenses, social occasions, all kinds of things that they have to pay for out of their own pocket. So that's not actually like their take-home pay uh, but regardless, all right. even if you take half of that out, two-thirds of that out, it's still an obscene amount of money by the standards of the majority of the population. Your new status as a successful graduate of the civil service exam, someone whose education was got you to the next step at every single possible uh, 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 fork in the road in life... Your new status, your new income will secure your extended family fortunes for at least two to three generations. Far more if your own sons manage to follow in your footsteps and are as successful as you are. Dating is also made extremely easy. Well, there's no such thing as dating (laughs) in this day and age. We just talked about marriage and how arranged marriages and all this and there's no such thing as dating. All right. Nonetheless, my point is everyone will want to marry their daughters off to you. All the best families, if you have managed to pass a civil service examination system, all the best families will try to get you to take their daughter as your primary wife. And then many other families who are slightly, you know, will also try to get get their daughters to marry you as a concubine. Okay. Um, Oftentimes, you'll find people who are merchants, successful merchants. Uh, Merchants are people, are a class of people that the Confucians habitually looked down upon they say they're a parasite on society they don't create anything they just act as a middleman and siphon off wealth um merchants they're not allowed to sit for the exams and oftentimes merchant sons are not allowed to sit for exams either so if you're a merchant and you have a lot of money and you got wealthy and you want to translate that money into social respectability so everyone doesn't see you as a parasite anymore what are you going to do marry your daughter off to someone who has just passed the exams okay Maybe they don't come from all that wealthy of a family, or maybe they, 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 they do, but you're just infinitely more wealthy than them because your business was so successful. Well, now you're laundering your, your crude new money through a marriage with someone who is socially respectable and highly regarded. Okay? So in many different ways, becoming an, a magistrate in the imperial bureaucracy will improve your economic and social position. Now, for the unfortunate boys who don't pass the civil service examination system, their route through education is going to result in the acquisition at the acquisition of the same basic knowledge template as the fortunate ones, but lack of success in the exams is going to relegate them To the realm of what we might refer to as an educated shadow economy. Okay, you can get a job as a private tutor, a local school teacher, or a clerk in the local government office, the Yaman. But officially, you don't exist. You don't get a state salary. You're not on the payroll. The magistrate or the governor pays you out of his own pocket. Remember that 180,000 all Alright, he's paying you out of that. But officially, that doesn't even get reported to the imperial capital, because you aren't important enough to be listed as an official employee. Your livelihood depends entirely on the patronage of a successful mere image of yourself, someone who took the same path as you, but just happened to pass the exams. Now you're dependent on their patronage. Maybe you'll be a tutor to his kids. Okay? Or you'll be a clerk in the local yamen. Or maybe you can train to become a legal specialist and help the magistrate with his legal proceedings. Okay? You can, you know, technical knowledge in law. You can acquire specialized knowledge in engineering, irrigation, public works. You can become an accountant. All these are absolutely essential jobs. But they're not nearly as prestigious as those, as the job of the person who now pays your salary. The magistrate or the governor. Okay? You will be led you will not lead others you will not have any job security or extended family fortunes and there will be no guarantee that you can even extend this job to your immediate successors your son okay you are at the you serve at the pleasure of your patron who did pass the civil service examination system okay now as i said the exams are first established during the tang dynasty I think it's the uh, 700s. Wu, it's Empress Wu Zetian, actually, who takes control, and she's trying to find a way to inject new blood into the bureaucracy, people who aren't entrenched like the previous nobility. And she comes up with the idea of having an examination system in which outsiders can apply and help you know, destabilize or break into the monopoly that the hereditary noble families have in court. And this plan sort of backfires because the nobles have the resources to educate their sons, and they end up dominating the exam anyways. Um, So it's only during the Song Dynasty in which the exam truly becomes something that everyone is taking in order to try to get into official service. Now, what are you studying in order to take the Chinese civil service exam for 900 years or so? what, what, What did you study? Well, You had to engage in rote memorization of standardized classical texts, and that memorization begins at age three. Okay. The language of the earliest classics was archaic and difficult. It means nothing to you. You simply learn it as a meaningless mantra that you memorize in your brain, almost like a foreign language. Okay. Creative and independent interpretation of these classics is not encouraged, okay? You read these texts not in their original form, but with layers of commentary from other scholars over the previous 2,000 years inserted in between the lines. Literally, it's inserted in between the lines of the text you're going to read, what other scholars have said about this passage, how they interpreted it, all right? And the assumption is, is that first you just built, first you just build a rote foundation of memorized text and you don't understand what it all means and it's only later that you eventually come to comprehend the meaning the larger more profound meaning of what you are studying now what is, what sort of rote memorization questions are you studying are you trying to pass well here's an example all right let's take it from confucius's analects this will be a passage that will appear on civil service exam it'll say quote this is saying the following passage is from the analects quote there are three things a gentleman fears end quote they didn't even have quotation marks back then but nevertheless finish the rest of the passage you need to have memorized exactly where that line comes from and then finish the rest of that line and then add the commentary of x y and z scholars And then finally, add your own commentary. Another sample question from one of these exams. What is one place in the Analects where three prepositions occur in sequence? Since this is a podcast, I can't write these prepositions on the board. But the overall point is that it's saying this is an odd linguistic appearance in which you would never expect these three characters to appear. Where do they appear? You're just trying to find a needle in a haystack. There's no larger meaning to this. It's just, you know, it's trying to show, did you memorize the text or not? Now, when you're growing up and you're studying to pass these exams, you're going to be taught by a failed candidate who is your private tutor. Or you're going to go to a school nearby that your parents are paying for, and that's run by these failed candidates. Okay? Because if you pass the exams, you don't become a private tutor. You work in the government bureaucracy. So the people who are teaching the next generation of hopeful test-takers are those who also studied for the exams, but then didn't pass them. By the age of 15, 12 years after you started to memorize things, you've memorized all the classics, as well as the positions, not individual characters, but you've memorized the positions of 431,286 characters in all the texts that you have studied. Now, what texts are you studying? After 1200 AD, you are studying Zhu Xi's four books. What are Zhu Xi's four books? Zhu Xi is a Neo Confucian philosopher who lives from about 1130 to 1200 AD during the Song Dynasty. Okay, and he is given credit for having taken the Confucian tradition and integrated the Buddhist streamlined access to wisdom and salvation that Mahayana Buddhism offered the people of China. In other words, there was Confucianism that had existed since the Warring States era. Okay, Buddhism enters East Asia around the turn of the first millennium, zero or so, and takes root. And it's seen as something that's more accessible to the common man as opposed to the Confucianism, which is very elitist and inaccessible. Zhu Xi will take this Buddhist emphasis on the salvation of the entire population. And what he'll do is he will distill the Confucian classics from, you know, 10, 15, 20, 50 texts and say, you know what, here's your cliff notes. Here's what you really need to know. And this is it. So he'll have one book. He has four books. One of them is an abbreviated version of Confucius's Analects. One will be one of the books from Mencius, one of the chapters from Mencius. And then two will be chapters from the Book of Rites, the Great Learning and the Doctrine of the Mean. Okay? That's what you're studying. And that's the orthodoxy of the exam that you will be tested on. Zhu Xi's interpretation of the Confucian Classics, based on his response to the Buddhist challenge of making wisdom and knowledge accessible to everyone. All right? In a sense, it's sort of the dumbing down of Confucianism, or the abridgment of Confucianism, to distill it into its essential points. Okay? What do the classics provide, or what were they imagined to provide? They were imagined to provide scholars, officials, and students with a set of general assumptions about good and evil in government and society, and then provide a rich fund of human anecdotes to analyze and let these, these assumptions about good and evil play out by example. So you could emulate this or avoid that. Right? They're paradigms for how to achieve social order. It's like the Bible. The Bible is used in the exact same way in Western Europe, or in Europe. Okay, Zhu Xi's four books will replace the five Confucian classics of the Han dynasty, the 13 classics of later dynasties. So this is too unwieldy, too archaic. So the Song state will adopt the four books as the basis of the new exam system, and this will be perpetuated by the Yuan dynasty, the Ming dynasty, and the Qing dynasty, all the way until the exams are abolished in 1905. All right. The purpose of the curriculum from one overseer of the exams in Beijing during the middle of the Qing dynasty said the following quote: "The system for selecting successful examination candidates has been established so that the latter can be divided up and sent out to handle the affairs of the empire. If one wants to handle the affairs of the empire, then one must weigh opinions based on moral principles." Li if one wants to clarify the principles of the empire, one must weigh opinions based on the classics. And Juicy's four books would help you do that. Now, there's nothing unique about the rote memorization skills and expectations of an exam like this. I know the very first response of some people who are, you know, are going to say, oh, is this why uh, the sciences and memorization and lack of creativity seems to be the hallmarks of non-Western education in Asia? There's this stereotype that Asians are not encouraged in their educational traditions to be creative or to stand out as opposed to conform. Okay, And this is sometimes we'll say, oh, this is why the West was so dynamic and took over the world because we invented things and we were encouraged to break out of the mold Okay? No, 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 no. When we get our, we, sorry. When the Western countries institute their first civil service examination systems, they're going to be exactly the same. Okay? They're going to be based on rote memorization, questions that are largely divorced from everyday life, you know, vague philosophical concepts, and creative mavericks will not be encouraged on those either. This is an examination system that is designed to certify your ability to engage in mental labor. That's basically what, what, what you're getting here. It says, this person has proven his ability to engage enormous amounts of literary classics. Think about them in dynamic ways based on what earlier commentators have said and he has a storehouse of examples of good and evil and the way that the world should be that he can use in formulating policy okay that's all the examination system is it's a certification system to find out who's got a head on their shoulders and a brain that can now be turned to other tasks okay Western education was also once overwhelmingly classical and totally impractical in nature. All these pre-modern educational systems were based on the assumption that morality is the foundation of leadership and social harmony, and we know what leads to the cultivation of superior morality. It's the study of the ancient classics. Okay. And the ancient classics... They may be rigid, they may be archaic, but they're perfect. They're flawless and they'll teach you how to be a superior man. So a creative interpretation of them is not encouraged at the time that you're taking the examination system, maybe later, maybe later in your career, when you're 40 or 50 and you've been serving for a while, but not in your 20s. All right, just do the test, get a high enough score. And one day, you'll realize that you have imbibed the lessons. You have digested the lessons of how to be a morally superior man. And then you're, you're fit to lead people. You're not led anymore. You are a leader. You're not a cog in the machine. You're the machine that makes everything else work. The morally superior man is supposed to know how to use other people, employ other people, regulate social relations, manage talent. You're the CEO of your government office. Okay? The civil service exam is supposed to determine your potential to become that morally superior man through your rote mastery of the Confucian classics. I know that sounds like there's some paradoxes in there, but believe me, that's the, the, the guiding philosophy that ran through the system. Now, what about this civil service examination level? How do you actually take it? What are the logistics of taking this exam? Oh, well, there were three basic levels. Every year, exams would be held at the prefectural level. You know, that's, that's like a, a county, a county level, all right? Uh, very small. Well, not very small. You can still have, you know, 30, 40, 100, 200,000 people in, in a prefect And that's held every year. If you pass that, then there is a provincial examination system. That's not every year. I believe that was one and a half years or every two years. Okay, and you got to travel to that. You probably have to travel to the prefectural one as well, unless it just happens to be in, you know, your city. If you pass that, then you got to go to the province level. All right, you got to pay for travel expenses for that. And if you pass the provincial exam, then you go to the imperial capital exam. And that's once every three years. Now the pass rate, the rate at which people actually passed these exams and got the privilege to move up to the next level, is between one to seven percent at each level. Okay. Now sometimes there were exam quotas for different regions of the kingdom or the empire. All right. Oftentimes, when northern hybrid states were in ascendancy, when they were the ones in power, they tried to limit the quotas. For you know the culturally and economically wealthy provinces where they expected that the Han would dominate the exams and then dominate the imperial bureaucracy, they say no 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 this region is or this province is only going to have you know 500 people who are going to pass this exam no matter how many qualified people they have because we want to limit people from this part of the empire or else they'll they'll drown out the bureaucracy with their presence and at each level that you pass you get a different title. You pass the prefectural level, and you're known as a shengyuan, a licentiate. You pass the provincial level, and you're known as a juren, a recommended man. And if you pass the imperial capital level, you're known as a jin shi, a presented scholar. Meaning, presented to who? Uh, Jin shi is a, a scholar who is presented to the emperor. It means you get an actual audience with the emperor after you've passed. Only those who pass the highest level... And achieve the distinction of a jin shi, a presented scholar, are assured of imperial employment at the highest levels. Those are the only ones who are assured of becoming a county magistrate. All right, if you're a shengyuan or a juren, you are can certainly be a a well-respected man of your local community. You can serve in the in the, in the local government office as a clerk and whatnot. Uh, but you're not going to be getting jobs on an imperial or a national scale. All right? Now, you can tell already that there's going to be a lot of failed candidates, far more failed candidates than ever succeed. I mean, 1% to 7% at each level, that's an absurd pass rate. Okay? So, the state wants to keep tabs on educated, ambitious failures. They don't want large numbers of people taking the exams... Failing, being frustrated in their lives in their life's pursuit, and then going off to do other things and no one knows what happened to them. People who are educated were those who were thought to have a greater potential to become leaders, leaders of other men. Okay? But they were not perfected because they didn't pass all the way to the top. So who knows what the ta- the bitter taste of defeat, of failure in the exam system might do to ambitious, educated men who find their ambition frustrated. So the state required them. They said, if you want to keep on taking the exams in future years, you have to register with state schools and you have to maintain your eligibility. They're throwing them a bone here to say, we're going to hold out the prospect that maybe you'll pass it next time. But in order to do that, you have to stay active in the local school. We want to have someone who sees you and knows your name and what you're up to. To make sure that you don't go astray and go lead a rebellion. Because it's assumed that you are probably someone who has some charisma, some big ideas about the way the world should be, and an eagerness and probably an ability to lead other men. And if you're jaded, you might lead them to do things that are detrimental to the interests of the imperial government. Okay. Um, now, all Jinshur, as we said, meet the Emperor. If you pass the highest level and you're actually going to work in the Imperial bureaucracy, you're going to meet the Emperor. This isn't as rosy and you know nice as it seems. The, the point of these meetings with the Emperor is the Emperor is intimidating you in person and symbolically integrating you into his patrimonial network. He is now your ultimate. Patron, and he wants you to know that, that ultimately you are answerable to him. Right? Because the emperor distrusts you. Okay? Despite your audience with him, despite his attempt to intimidate you in his presence and symbolically insert you into his patrimonial network on a position on the social hierarchy lower than him, you're going to go off into the empire. You're never going to see the emperor again. And you're going to largely identify with your own personal, professional networks. And the emperor sees you as an interest group separate from himself. He needs you to rule his empire, but he profoundly distrusts you because your expertise, your position ultimately does not derive from him. Symbolically, it derives from him, but in practice, it derives from your own brain your own ability separate from his patronage. And he knows that this is why the emperor hires eunuchs or bannermen or other sorts of dependent intermediaries precisely because he wants to balance out the influence of the people who passed the civil service examination system. All right. The eunuchs, the bannermen and probably the emperor himself never passed this examination system. You are essential to running the bureaucracy of the empire but you are also a threat to the empire, to the emperor he doesn't trust you to carry out his bidding and he thinks that the moment you go into the the moment you go into the provinces you're going to carry you're going to pursue your own interests to the detriment of imperial government interests and that's why the the um the imperial, imperial bureaucracy will never be made up of more than 50% of people who have passed the civil service examination system because he wants to have it balanced out with people who do not rise up through this system and have an independent source of power from him. He wants those who are very loyal to him, the eunuchs, the dependent intermediaries, the bannermen. Okay. So yes, the Chinese civil service exam system, it championed the ideal of an anonymous meritocracy. Okay, It wasn't always achieved. It was never achieved in practice completely. But this anonymous meritocracy was still far beyond anything else anywhere else in the world. Okay, You're not going to see any other anonymous standardized testing system to create civil servants according to a standardized template until Great Britain in the 19th century. In the 19th century, Great Britain will begin to feel a need to train civil service employees for their dominions in India, their colonial government in India, the Raj. And they'll come up with a standardized test. That like the Chinese exams, even in the 19th century, it was largely testing them on classical languages, not the present day languages and and, and customs and circumstances of India. You would learn Sanskrit, you know, ancient Sanskrit and literature, and philosophy, and that sort of stuff, just like the Chinese exams. Okay, that's 900 years (laughs) after the exam is regularized during the Song Dynasty. That's a big gap in time. Okay, so let's not be too harsh on the um, shortcomings of the uh, anonymous meritocracy that the civil service exam system aspired to be. But as I said, by design, the exams would never produce more than 50% of all imperial posts in the bureaucracy. There was always a shadow recommendation system, okay, in which people who were already in power could give recommendations for people that they wanted to see in power, and that would increase the chances that these people could be hired outside of the civil service examination system, okay? There might be easier exams, that other people could take if they had recommendations, or if they were of a particular lineage, if they were Manchu, and this was a Manchu-led di- Northern Hybrid Dynasty, then Manchus could probably take an easier exam system, or not have to take any exam whatsoever to get their to get to, to get their job. Okay, um, sometimes it was possible to purchase a, a, a degree in times when the state had you know. Thin, tre- thin treasuries and needed to raise money. Some people could purchase a degree and that was seen as you know just as prestigious, well, don't know just as prestigious, but also capable of getting you um, into an official post. So what you see, let's sort of go over the chronology here of the history of this examination system. Roughly speaking, from about 1000 to 1400 AD you will have an examination system that produces about 50%, at most, of all officials in the Song Dynasty. Okay? Um, During the Song Dynasty, up until about 1250 or so, and then the Mongols will periodically discontinue the exams. The founder of the Ming Dynasty will discontinue the exam as well. Okay? And you'll also have a shadow recommendation system under the Song that produces the remaining 50% of all imperial officials. The heyday of the exam is probably 1400 to 1650 AD. All right, that's the Ming Dynasty after the death of the founder, Zhu who who is very hostile to scholars. All right, so for about 250 years, you have the heyday of the exam. Um, but the Ming Dynasty also has 20,000 eunuchs one of the highest numbers of eunuchs in any dynasty, so clearly they don't trust the people who come up through the exam system either all that much, because the emperor is balancing them out with eunuchs who are utterly loyal to the emperor himself. From 1650 to 1800, the exams flourish again under the Manchu Qing dynasty, but they institute quotas against the uh, Han heartland in what's known as the Jiangnan region, the Yangtze River Valley area. Uh, because they're afraid if we don't have any quotas, this region will dominate the exams and they will, you know, uh, inundate the bureaucracy with educated and wealthy Han. Um, there was also another route to power for Manchu and Mongol and Han bannermen who had hereditary military positions in in the Qing government. Um, and they would be able to get positions in the Qing government without having taken the exams or with taking an easier form of the exam. And then finally, from 1800 to 1905, the exam still exists, but the population is so huge now. And there are so many people taking these exams um, that the Jin degree no longer guarantees a post, even if you pass the highest level of the exam. And because the finances of the Qing government are also in arrears by this point, it was fairly easy to purchase a degree in times of fiscal crisis. So the Jin degree becomes diluted to a very large extent. Uh, during the last hundred years of its existence. And then finally in 1905, the civil service exam is abolished um, in favor of a Western-style educational system. Um, they, they they decide that by 1905, after various geopolitical crises, that we need to reform and pretty much everything traditional needs to go. And the exam system is one of the last things to go because education was seen as so central to the identity of the educated Confucian gentleman uh, that was held off uh, almost you know, six years before the fall of the dynasty before they decided that they weren't going uh, to do that anymore. So, in the final assessment, all right, the exam was a certification system that ensured a steady stream of carefully vetted, really smart people who were mostly from the elite classes but occasionally with fresh blood. Okay, Because it was difficult to maintain your family's elite status purely through the exams. Exams were really, really, really hard to pass. Many people went their entire life and never passed it. In fact, that was so common that there was a law that said if you reach your 70th birthday and you still take the exams and you still fail it, we'll give you an honorary degree anyways. uh, So you can hang it on your wall and impress your friends. Because by that point, you're not going to be getting an official position anyways, if you've really spent your whole life trying to pass this exam. Okay. Um, So, you know, there there were people who failed it their entire lives, but some people would succeed, and it was possible for lower members of society to save up money painstakingly over many generations, and when they were modestly successful, not even hugely successful, they could finally invest in their sons, and their sons just might pass it. So it did provide a mechanism for fresh blood to enter the elite stratum of society without warfare. Okay. Uh, the exam wanted to be able to determine if you were good enough for deployment in an administrative post. Alright, and the way they determined if you're good enough for deployment in an administrative post was to see how well you were able to memorize the humanistic training in philosophy and literature and history that dominated the Confucian education in pre-modern China okay this was the source of intellectual prestige for the you know almost all of the Imperial and traditional Chinese era well throughout all of East Asia also okay you you're, 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 you're not going to see a major shift in this until the 1950s. It's not until the 1950s when you have the rise of a communist state, and of course we'll talk about this in 20, 30 episodes from now when we eventually get into the 20th century. It's only with the rise of a communist state that this humanistic training in philosophy and history and literature will finally be displaced by an emphasis on the technical skills of the hard sciences. Okay, and as we'll discuss further down the road, this is why all leaders, all presidents or prime ministers, whatever they're called, um, in China today, have engineering degrees of one sort or another. All right? After that first generation of the revolutionary leaders, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, once they finally died out, who takes over China? Look it up. Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping, they all have engineering degrees, chemical engineering, some sort of engineering degree. From a prestigious Beijing or Shanghai university. Okay, there's a reason for that. And of course, we'll talk about that. Um, it used to be that those who were in position of power throughout Chinese history were those who had equivalent degrees or equivalent mastery of philosophy, literature, and history. That is no longer the case today. The humanities have been vastly devalued in a country in which you're trying to you know, industrialize at a breakneck pace. But that's a relatively new phenomenon. For 3,000 years, this was the sort of education that accrued prestige if you were growing up anywhere in East Asia. And for the last 900 years, or the last 1,000 years, it was specifically this education as it was applied to the civil service examination system that could bring one fame and fortune. Now, in our next episode... We are going to start talking about a place where very few people with a civil service degree ever ventured, the Silk Road, the abode of merchants and refugees. I hope you'll join me.